0: It's been such an honor to share the stage with incredible leaders and communicators and um, around, from around the, the, the world, and um, it's, just, it's just an honor to be a part. Although I reckon, I reckon the, best, the best preacher of the day might have been the young lady that did the spoken poetry thing. That was pretty awesome. I, I was up there. I was like mesmerized. It took me five minutes to get over how stunned I was at the rhythm of it. And, you could give me to the end of days to come up with something like that oh, i couldn't do it and everybody's got their their grace and so my job is to open the bible and um and i take that really seriously and so anytime you open the bible you want to ask at least two questions one what happened And two more importantly What's happening in me right now because of what happened? If you're the type that wants to look at something the actual Bible, Romans chapter 5, we're going to get there um, in, in just a, a second. So where we've come over the course of the last couple days is we've been talking about unified. And, and in the first night, we talked about that part of our unification is, is in our worship and in our divine dance, being in step with what God is up to and showing the world what that relationship is. Uh, might look like. Pa- Pastor Mark Verghese this morning talked about one of the things that unifies us is a thankful heart. And that gratitude, that spirit of gratitude serves as an alarm clock and a compass and an anchor and a key to what we are trying to, to build. What I brought this morning is one of the things that, us, that unifies us is salvation. It, it's very simple to get distracted by things that matter less. And so one of the things that should unify us is the idea that hope flows through suffering and salvation is one day, one day, one day, but it's also here, now, today. Tonight my task is to talk about something else that should unify us, and that is the Bible, and namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I might have bitten off more than I could chew, here's here's what I'm hoping to do. I'm hoping that everybody that'll stick with me tonight will understand the entire Bible in five words and why Jesus is so important and unique and special and that we'll understand the gospel. So my goal is, is that we will understand the entire Bible and how the gospel works in about 40 minutes. And I promise you won't be bored (laughs) in the middle of it. We're also going to do some things like I'm going to ask you to repeat some words with me and do some motions, and I want you to do it with some equipper's gusto, because I can see that you all know how to move and shout. and you, Heck, you call the name of the thing, shout. So we're going to do some of that. This is Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. A revolutionary, ridiculous claim. As, as far as I know, the only claim like it in the history of the world, from any religion, from any part of the world, from any, from any corner of the globe. A God that acts first and then humbly waits for your consent back. As far as I know, it never happened. Every other God in the history of the world, you go to their temple at their moment, at their time, and do their ritual in their posture and pay their offering... And then maybe that God would respond to you by acting on your behalf, not the God revealed in Christ. The God revealed in Christ humbly consents in love first and then waits for you to mutually consent. It's a radical claim because whoever says I love you first is taking all the risk. If you've ever dated somebody and you got to that weird point in the relationship where you wonder if you could say I love you, whoever says I love you first is taking all the risk Like, you imagine imagine sitting across somebody, you're like, I think I'm going to say it, I think I'm going to say it, like, um, I love you. What if they, what you hope is they say, I love you too. But what if they say, I know. That's nice. Good for you, Right. An unreciprocated, non-consensual relationship, would would that be? But this is not, the God revealed in Christ is a God that says, I expect you to do nothing first. I will take the first move and then humbly consent to your mutual consent. That is a revolution. So revolutionary, actually, that I'm not sure. To understand this, we got to understand the Bible and where the Bible takes the narrative. That this was a revolutionary thought. So let's talk about the Bible for a second, and then we're gonna bring the gospel into the story, because the way I look at the Bible is the Bible is Christ-centered, that the whole Bible's going, that Christ is the culmination of where the story goes. So I'm gonna say a few things. The first one will be quite academic. Do not panic, I'm gonna state the same thing more simply, and then I'm gonna even go more simple than that, ready? Here's the academic statement, ready, here we go. The Bible is not a static record of God. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive, moving revelation of God, leading to the final revelation of God and the risen Christ. Let's go one step simpler. What that means is, is that although God never changed, the way people related to God and thought about God changed over and over and got better and better and better and better and better, leading to the final revelation of God and the risen Christ. Let's state it even more simple. That although God never changed, the more people understood about God, the closer he got And the nicer he got. In other words, and that's a good thing, because you don't want somebody getting closer and meaner. Like, closer and nicer is a good thing. So, in other words, although God never changed, the more they understood about God, the closer they realized he was. And the nicer they realized he was. Now, to understand this, let's go all the way back to Abraham. I told you you would understand the entire Bible in five words in 40 minutes. I will keep my promise, okay? So let's go back to Abraham and let's answer the question how did God get closer? So in Abraham, Abraham lived in, a, in, in an age and in a, in a place called ancient Sumeria. No temples, no scriptures. They didn't know much about God at all, right? And if you wanted, if you ask anybody in that day, where did God live? The answer was, ready, up, up in the sky, that God lives out there somewhere. So, for us to learn this, we're going to have to interact a little bit, okay? So, for the rest of the night, when I say, in Abraham's day, God lived, we're going to all say, up, and put our thumb up in the air. So, we're going to go, up. Now, because this place is so huge and sprawling, we're going to have to work on this to get our rhythm, okay? So, let's do this with some Equipper's Shout Conference gusto, okay? Let's try this. Ready? In Abraham's day, God lived, up. That's very good, very good. So, let's do this a couple more times just to get our rhythm, because this is going to come back. In Abraham's day, God lived. Oh, oh, that is really good. One more time with one more edge of gusto. Ready? In Abraham's day, God lived. Oh, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's it. Yeah, God lived up in the sky. Now, we know from the Bible that Abraham was a sun worshiper. Was he a bad guy? No, the idea is that if God lives up in the sky, if you go out in the day and you look up in the sky, what's the most powerful thing in the sky? the sun so obviously that big ball of fire is god the problem is that with that is that the sun sets every day so if the sun is the god of the day then the yeah the moon would be the god of the night and the idea was is that the sun was more powerful than the moon until by observation because you can look straight at the moon they started writing things down about the moon and here's what they realized they realized that the moon goes through a 28 day cycle very predictable. New moon, waxing, waning, full moon. New moon, waxing, waning, full moon. And every 28 days, the moon renews itself, which led to this observation. What else in creation renews itself every 28 days? Women. Half the room should know this. (laughs) I can see the guy in the back going, hey, Billy, what's he talking about, man? I don't get this at all. Yeah, no, no. 20, you know that thing that happens once a month, right? And if it doesn't, it, you panic and go to the chemist shop, right? No, that, right? It's like, oh no, what? what? Like, no, 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 that. Okay, so, so just basic seventh grade science. Every twenty eight days, a woman, re- a woman's body renews itself. So here was the logic, right? If the moon renews itself every twenty eight days, and the women are renewing itself every twenty eight days, then the moon must be in charge of fertility. So the God of fertility is the moon and the God controlling the women's moods. <sighs> How powerful is this moon? So when the full moon's out, you better get out of the cave. <laughs> so the idea is that God lived up in the sky. Now, I don't, don't think too hard about this. If you're an ancient Sumerian farmer... What do you desperately need to come out of the sky for you to live? Yeah, rain. And so the idea is, who's controlling the rain? The gods in the sky. So the question is, what must we do to please the gods of the sky? I'll get to that in a second, because we want them happy. Because if they're happy, they'll send rain. If they're upset, they'll withhold the rain. They will die. And if they're really ticked off, they'll send too much rain. But, but, but the gods of the sky are controlling this life source that helps us Live. We'll get to that in a second. For right now, everybody ready? All I want you to remember is that in Abraham's day, God lived. Uh, Four hundred thirty years later, a guy named Moses comes along, and Moses is like, "No, God doesn't live up. God lives in a tent in the middle of camp. God doesn't live up. That's ridiculous. God lives in a tent." because that's less ridiculous. So what Moses did is he said, no, no, God isn't existent and far away like that. God is actually closer than we can imagine. He lives in a tent. So Moses built a tent. It was 45 foot long by 15 foot wide by 15 foot high. It was covered in animal hair. It was pretty um, unimpressive actually. So he told the people, the presence of God is so special. If you go in there, you'll die. Of course, there's no record of that ever happening. Actually, Nebuchadnezzar stole the furniture, did not die. Tiglath-Pileser, right, sat the place. He didn't die. But the idea is, is that if we tell people it's unavailable to them, it'll make it even more special. But what made Moses' revelation so awesome is that it moved the whole world from God living up to the idea that God can be closer and in a tent so for the rest of the sermon, when I say, in Moses' day, God lived in a, we're going to point toward the ground and say "tent." All right? So let's practice that ready. In Moses' day, God lived in a tent. In Moses day God lived in a tent. In Abraham's day, God lived up. Moses' day lives in a tent. Then years later, a guy named David comes along. and David's like, "No. God doesn't live in a tent? That's ridiculous. God needs his own building because that's less ridiculous. So David starts the process of building God a temple. Here was the problem. David was the head of state. So when he went to other countries to visit other kings, the other kings would say, let me show you our God's temple. And it was these magnanimous things, right? And then those kings would come back and visit David and they'd be like, where's your God's temple? And David's like, send that tent over there. And so David said, this is is nonsense. If the pagans can build their gods a temple that is grandiose, why can't we build the real god a temple that is grandiose? And the idea is, is that if the pagan kings ever thought that their gods were bigger than us, they would attack us. So David starts the process of building God a temple. Now I understand that Solomon finished it, but Solomon's a bit harder and less rhythmic to say. So for tonight, we'll say in David's day, God lived in a temple and we'll point up like that, like sort of at an angle, right? So let's practice that. In David's day, God lived in a temple, A right, little bit more rhythm and a lot more umph, right? In David's day, God lived in a temple. So let's practice from the beginning. In Abraham's day, God lived up. Moses' day, he lived in a tent. In David's day, he lives in a temple. Then years later, this guy named Jesus comes along. And people were like, hey, wait a minute. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. In other words, in the Bible, the Bible is not a static record of God. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive, moving revelation of God, leading to the final revelation of God and the risen Christ. In the same narrative, beautiful, awesome, inspired narrative of Scripture, you have this idea that God can live up, and then later they realize, actually, he's closer, he's in a tent, and then, no, 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 he's in a temple. But by the time Jesus comes along, they're like, actually, God has put flesh on and is walking around having dinner with us, teaching us how to live. God is getting closer, So for the rest of the sermon, when I say in Jesus' day, God lived in, we're going to tap our hand and say flesh. So let's practice that. Ready? Jesus' day, God lived in? Flesh. Very good. In Jesus' day, God lived in? Flesh. Let's review. In Abraham's day, God lived up. Moses' day, he lives in a? Tent. David's day, he lives in a? Temple. Jesus' day, he lives in? Flesh. Boy, God's getting closer. The more we understand about God, the closer he got. Like you go from up, this untouchable thing to attend to a temple to flesh. And then the rest of the New Testament there's a guy named Paul Peter, James, John they say things like this don't you know that you are the temple of the living God? So in Paul's day the way he understood God was that Jesus gifted his spirit to us. So for the rest of the sermon when I say in Paul's day God lived in Us, not just me, but us. For in Christ all things hold together and he is all and in all things. For the spirit of the risen Christ is filling everything in every way. For by him and for him and through him all things were made and in him all things hold together. The idea is that in Paul's day they finally understood that God was the insistent indwelling spirit holding all things together and that changes everything. So, for the rest of the sermon when I say in Paul's day God lives in us, us. a lot more gusto, a little more together, in Paul's day God lives in us. us. Let's review. In Abraham's day God lived. Us. Up, Moses' day he lives in a tent, and David's day he lives in a temple, and Jesus' day God lives in flesh, and Paul's day God lives in us. us. The whole Bible in 11 minutes. Five words, 11 minutes. Up, tent, temple, flesh. Us and by the way, that strangely mirrors your own relationship with God. The pilgrimage of the Scriptures strangely mirrors our own relationship with God. There was a day that you thought God was real, but He lived far away and you couldn't get to Him. And then at some point you realize, no, no, God's closer than I think, but I still can't touch Him. And then at some point you acknowledge that the fullness of God is in Christ, and you get gifted the Holy Spirit, and you realize that God is in the very air that we breathe. As Jesus prayed, "My Father, who's as close to me." Is the air that I breathe, I stop and become aware of you. That the progression and the pilgrimage of Scripture mirrors our own relationship with God from up to tent to temple to flesh to us. But that's only half the story. One part of the story of the Scripture is that God is getting closer. The other part is that God is getting nicer. Now, did God ever change? No. But what people thought about God changed and how people related to God changed until the final revelation of God in the risen Christ. To understand how revolutionary Romans 5.8 is, let's go back to Abraham and let's review. Ready? Everybody together with a whole lot of gusto. In Abraham's day, God lived up. But we need to please the gods of the sky so that it will rain. Now there's no temple, there's no scriptures, there's no anything. In Abraham's day, what did you have to do to please God? And the answer was, I'm gonna show it to you and then we're gonna do it all together with a lot of gusto. In Abraham's day, if you ask, what must I do to please God, the answer was, yeah, I don't know. So let's practice that together with a lot of gusto. We're gonna shrug our shoulders and say, I don't know. All right, ready? Go, yeah, I don't know. So in Abraham's day, God lived. Up. Abraham's day God lived? Up. How'd you please God? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And what do you do when you don't know? Well, you make it up. And if you make it up with enough gusto, it sticks. So here's what ancient Sumerian culture did. They said you can please God two ways. First way is by self-mutilation. So if you've offended God and there's gonna be a drought that affects everybody, that's not not good. You can get right with God though by cutting yourself. Now what's the problem with that? If I say, hey, you've offended God and you can get right with God by cutting yourself and do so for everybody, right? What's your question? Well, what must I cut? And more importantly, how much of what must I cut? And the answer was, everybody together, I don't know. So what if you did 10 cuts? But the magic number was 11, and you still went to bed never knowing if you'd done enough to get right with God. So one sect of ancient Sumerian culture said, just cut till it rained. They lived in Iraq. Their arms would have been falling off. The other thing they said you could do to please God is sacrifice. Again that's problematic. Like if I say, hey, you've offended the gods, and you could get right with God by sacrificing. What's your question? What must I sacrifice? And more importantly, how much of what must I sacrifice? And the answer was, everybody together, Yeah, I don't know. So what they did is they, they, there was a sect of ancient Sumerian culture that Abraham lived in that they said, God cannot not accept if we give our best. So they made a rule. Everybody has to give their firstborn child as a sacrifice because the gods can't possibly reject that. And so they started killing their firstborn children in order to appease the gods of the sky to bring rain. Now, it's in that historical context that God shows up to Abraham. This is so important. If you know anything else I say, hear me say this. The God revealed at creation, Scripture, and Christ. God is always humble enough to meet the broken story where the broken story thinks God is in order to move it forward to a better version of that story. Not to judge it, condemn it, banish it, destroy it, but to engage the brokenness of the story in order to move it to a better version of that story. So God shows up to Abraham. I love the grace of God with Abraham. He says, hello Abraham, my name is El Shaddai. El Shaddai just means God Almighty. In other words, you got a bunch of gods, you got to be wondering who's in charge, that's me, right? Abraham's like, well, at least you're speaking. What do you expect from me, El Shaddai? Now, remember, in Abraham's world, what did God expect? Mutilation and sacrifice. So God meets the broken story exactly where the broken story is. And God says, okay, Abraham, first thing I want you to do is I want you to mutilate yourself. I want you to, sac- I want you to circumcise yourself with a rock. Yeah which is an odd command, isn't it, to a 90-year-old man. God's first command to a 90-year-old dude was pick up a rock, swing hard, don't miss. Strange. Have you ever seen a 90-year-old man? His hand shakes. His eyesight's not real good. He's like, well, Sarah, say a prayer for me, sweetheart. This is going to be interesting. This going to hurt really bad if I miss. I got to tell you now. So God says to Abraham, okay, you think you need to mutilate? Let's mutilate. I'll give you something to mutilate. No problem at all. Now, for us, we think of circumcision as barbaric and the law, and why would you ever do that? But to Abraham, the great God historian Karen Armstrong makes this great point, that to Abraham, circumcision was the most gracious thing ever. Why? Because in Abraham's day, how much did you have to mutilate? I don't know. So God shows up in the middle of that story and says, hey, here we, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to meet you exactly where you think I am. But if you think you need to mutilate, fine, mutilate. But we're going to circumcise. Now, why is that the most gracious thing ever? Well, because how many times could you ever possibly circumcise yourself? Yeah, the answer, that's ninth grade anatomy. Yes, once. Like, on if you could circumcise yourself twice, you would a man. I don't know, right? Like, I don't know. Right? It's like, hey, 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 no, no. no. That's So in other words, Abraham moved the whole world from infinite cutting to one cut. God's getting nicer. And, and then God, God says, okay, uh, second thing I want you to do is I want you to kill your kid. It's a weird story, unless you understand the history. And that God was meeting the broken story where the broken story Thinks God is in them then moving it forward. You, you go read the story. This is essentially how it goes. God says, Abraham, kill your kid. Now, that's weird. If I was to say, hey, you could get right with God by killing your kid, what would you be that You'd be like, what? Why? How? What, what, am I, what did I drink? Like, it would be like, how am I missing this? But not that day. God says to Abraham, I want you to kill your kid. Abraham's response is, sounds reasonable. He doesn't ask, why? He doesn't ask, How? He knows how. It says, so Abraham took Isaac to a high place. Why would you go to a high place? Where did God live? Up. So you gotta get higher. So he went up there to kill his kid. This is where the story gets awesome. God engages the broken story where the broken story thinks God is and moves it forward. God says, okay, you think you need to kill your kid? Kill your kid. But then God engages the broken story. He says, hey, I got a good idea. Instead of killing children, let's kill animals instead. Now, when you're the first person to get the idea that we can kill animals instead of kids, is that a good move or a bad move? That's a pretty good flipping move. Is that a word from God? You better believe it. Is that inspired? Absolutely. Is that the final word of God? No, the final word of God is the risen Christ. But that's a giant leap in the right direction. Kill animals instead of kids, who duh right? So Abraham does this. Abraham comes down off the mountain with Isaac still alive. What are his neighbors thinking? No, no, bro you got to get up there and kill your kid. It's not nice, but we had to do it. Our grandpabbies had to do it. Our great grandpabbies had to do it. It's unfortunate. It's not nice, but you're going to bring a drought on everybody. Go kill your kid. And Abraham's like, no, no, listen. I've got a new revelation of how nice God is. Instead of killing kids, he accepts animal sacrifice instead. The Talmud tells the rest of the story. The Talmud says that Abraham was so moved by the compassion of El Shaddai to spare Isaac that he went into his room of idols, that Abraham had this room of idols, and he went in with an ax, and he finally, with the compassion of God driving him, he finally had the guts to destroy all of his idols in his room of idols, except one, and he left the one standing, and he put the ax in his hand. So, the next day, when Abraham's father came into worship, he's like, Abraham, what happened in here? And Abraham's like, isn't it obvious there was a fight amongst the gods, and that one must have won. So Abraham goes on a journey. Abraham's God's name was El Shaddai. With that same amount of shout gust on, everybody say that with me, ready? Go, El Shaddai, very good, let's try that again, go. El Shaddai, one more time, because it's so important. El Shaddai, Abraham has a son named Isaac, who's his God? El Shaddai, Isaac has a son named Jacob, who's his God? El Shaddai, Jacob has 12 children, who's their God? El Shaddai, 12 children have 12 children, who's their God? El Shaddai, 144 kids have 12 kids, who's their God? El Shaddai, the math is getting too hard, who's their God? El Shaddai, 20 generations later, there is no God but El Shaddai. No other name other than El Shaddai. It's in our verses, it's in our websites, it's in our pamphlets, it's in our fundamental truths. There is no God but El Shaddai. Then Moses comes along. And Moses is a premeditated murdering fugitive. I look this way and that and seeing no one, I killed the man and hit him in the sand. Problem was the next day the sand shifted. You got this leg sticking up out of the sand. He's out in the wilderness. Now Moses grew up in Pharaoh's house. And in Pharaoh's house, the God, the main God was the sun. And the sun is made of fire. So, Moses grew up his whole life thinking God's a fire. So, Moses is out in the wilderness. God is always humble enough to meet you where you think God is and then move your story better. Moses thinks God is a fire. So, how does God meet Moses? A fire. Oh, you think I'm a fire? I'll be a fire. But if you're paying attention, I'm I'm not a consuming fire that you were taught. Like if you tick this fire off, it'll like consume you. I'm actually, if you're paying attention, I'm not even harming the most flammable thing in the desert. I'm more of a refining fire, right? As the great T.S. Eliot wrote, we only sustain, only suspire, consume by either fire or fire. That you will live your whole life terrified of the consuming fire of the sun God Ra. Or by faith, you'll embrace the refining fire of a loving Yahweh who, although he will perfect you, he will never harm you. For the bush was not consumed. So Moses has this encounter with the burning bush. Think about your Bible, right? The burning bush says, hello, Moses. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, wait a minute. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is who? El- right. Moses goes, oh, hello, El Shaddai. I should probably take my shoes off. The burning bush says, no. No. My name is Yud Hey Vav Hey. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses argues with a talking bush. Moses says, "No." The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is El Shaddai. Everybody knows that. It's in our verses. It's in our pamphlets. It's in our websites. It's in our fundamental truths. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is El Shaddai. The burning bush says, I introduced myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, but by my name, yud Hey vav Hey, they didn't know me. Now, if you know anything about Hebrew, you know you cannot say yud vav Hey. The letters don't go together. It's phonetically impo- Like, yudeh vave would be like me saying, my name is... Come again? What? Yude vave. What? Yudeh vave. It's not even a word. I know. I know. My name is Yudeh vave. What's that even mean? It means I am what I am. Well, that clears it up. So Moses goes back to the Israelites. He doesn't have much credibility. And, and here is his message. Ready? You wouldn't have bought it either. Don't worry. Here's his message. Hey, guys, I know you've been taught for 20 generations that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is El Shaddai. But I've got a new revelation of God, and his name isn't just El Shaddai. It's also yod Hey vav Hey. How well do you think that went? It didn't go well. It went something like this. What? Yudeh Vavhe. What? Yudeh? Moses is not even a word! I know! I know! His name's Yudeh Vavhe. Where'd he tell you this, Moses? In the wilderness. Was anybody else there to witness that? No. How'd he tell you? Talking bush. <laughs> Which leads to this observation. Right? You wouldn't have bought it either. And don't worry, they didn't either. Remember when they were stoning Stephen? He said, why are you stoning me? They said, because you're removing the traditions of Moses. He He said, you mean the Moses you rejected when he had a new idea about God? That guy? You kidding me? Jewish history tells us the story. that They didn't buy his story until he brought water out of the rock and parted the Red Sea. That started to lend credibility to his story. So this God inspires Moses to write a book called Leviticus. Again, to us, barbaric Just blood everywhere. Leviticus. But in history, Leviticus is the nicest book about God ever written in the history of the world up to the time it was written. Why? Because Leviticus is the first book ever written from any civilization anywhere that put a limit on sacrifice and mutilation. Leviticus says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to circumcise on the eighth day. That way no one remembers it. And then no more mutilating your bodies. I forbid you from ever putting markings on your bodies to please God. Trust me, he never thought there'd be people arguing in 2021 about whether or not it's a sin to have a tattoo. That was not the point. The point was, you'll never have to scar yourself to please God ever again. We're going to mutilate once, and then we're over in. One sacrifice per family per year, and you can know you're okay with God. Wow. Wow. So in Moses' day, God lives in a tent. But how much did you have to sacrifice? Once. How much do you have to mutilate? Once. Let's review with a whole lot of equipper's gusto. Ready? Here we go. In Abraham's day, God lived. Up. How much do you have to sacrifice? I don't know. How much you have to mutilate? I don't know. Moses' day, he lives in a tent. How much do you have to sacrifice? Once. How much you have to mutilate? Once. Years later, David makes a. Temple, the rules don't change. How much you have to sacrifice? Once. How much you have to mutilate? Once. And then the prophets come along. And the prophets start really foretelling some really cool things. Like the prophets start thinking, I think, I think we've missed something. It's not that it was bad. I just think there's, I think there's another version of the story that makes it better. Like there's this prophet named Micah. And Micah's like... What kind of a god is grumpy and then gets less grumpy cuz you killed a bird? That doesn't make any sense. Just do justly, love mercy and walk humbly with God. It'll be okay. Of course Micah was too far ahead of himself and they killed Micah. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 23. He says, "You who the people you call prophets today are the ones you stoned yesterday." Like anyone who shows up with a too far of a good idea about God, you kill them only to realize they were onto something. Right? And then Jesus comes along. So before we get to Jesus, let's review to make sure we're all on the same page with that same amount of shout gusto. Ready? Here we go. In Abraham's day, God lived up. Ah, how much you have to sacrifice? I don't know. Mutilate? I don't know. Moses' day, he lives in a tent. How much you have to sacrifice? Once. How much you have to mutilate? Once. David's day, he lived in a temple. Sacrifice? Once. Mutilate? Once. In Jesus' day, God lived in flesh. And then Jesus started making God nicer than anyone ever thought possible, ever. Jesus started calling people forgiven without a sacrifice. Which led to all kinds of questions like, is Jesus allowed to do that? Oh my goodness. Okay, so we got to practice that. If I ask you, is Jesus allowed to do something, the answer is yes. All right, so let's practice that. Is Jesus allowed to do that? Yes. (laughs) Like, there's this one time. There's this tax collector up a tree named Zacchaeus. And Jesus sees him. Like, there's a crowd. And Jesus sees the guy up a tree and he says, Hey, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm eating with you. And Zacchaeus was so moved by the compassion of Jesus that he said, Hey, man, here and now, I'll give half of what I have to the poor. And what does Jesus say? That's it. it salvation has come to your house is Jesus allowed to do that yes. no sacrifice no temple visit no ritual no no Romans 10 9 and 10 it hadn't been written yet I know it surprises some people that anyone got saved before the book of Romans was written but they did Jesus sees this man's heart change and that seems to be enough for Jesus to meet him the rest of the way. That Jesus consents and this guy consents back one millimeter and Jesus is like, I'm in the rest of the way. See, what was the only way for Zacchaeus to be saved in the first century? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? Tax collectors. So when your job forbidded you from entering into the only place salvation was available, what hope did you have? Jesus circumvents the entire system of oppressive power and he sees this man's heart change and he says, salvation has come to this house. There's this one time. It says that Jesus went by a prostitute's house. Which leads to all kinds of questions like, is Jesus allowed to do that? And what would be going on at a prostitute's house in the first century? Business. Like Jesus is between customers. Which leads to this question, would there be ever a worse place to run into Jesus? That'd be horrible. Imagine the guy coming out of the back room, you know? It's like. Oh, Jesus, hey man. I was just here to use the toilet. (laughs) And it says that the prostitute was so moved by his compassion that she knelt down and washed his feet with her hair. And what does Jesus say? That's it. All your sins are now forgiven. Is Jesus allowed to do that? No sacrifice? No temple visit? No specific prayer? No Romans 10, 9 and 10. She washed his his feet with her hair. And aren't you glad that that's not the rule? See, we tend to say Jesus is the only way. And yes, but if we mean by that my way to Jesus is the only way to Jesus, that's a whole other problem. Like what you find in scripture is Jesus meeting people exactly where their broken story is and responding to any heart response back to him at all. Like to all my bald brothers in the room. You, oh my goodness, me, you, definitely. Like with with all respect to you, sir, for you to wash your feet with your hair, it'd be a three-man job. You'd have to be turned upside down and used like a buffer. (laughs) See, what was the only way to be saved in the first century? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? prostitutes. So what do you do if you're forbidden from injury to the only place salvation was on altar? What do you do? What do you do? Jesus circumvents the entire system of oppressive power and he sees her heart change and says, I'm meeting you the rest of the way. That's it. All your sins are now forgiven. (laughs) There's this one time, there's this paralyzed guy and he can't get in the house where Jesus is preaching because it's too full So his friends cut a hole in the roof and lower him down. It's the most chaotic scene in Jesus' whole preaching life. Like, I don't care how good of a preacher you are, if someone repels from the roof, the meeting is over. How do you hold the attention? Like, heck, if a bird flew in here, I would have no hope. This guy just comes down, and it says, And Jesus saw the faith of his friends and proclaimed his sins forgiven. Is Jesus allowed to do that? What was the only way for that man to be saved in the first century? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? Paralyzed people. So what does Jesus do? He circumvents the entire system of oppressive power. And his clear message is God is so much nicer than you've ever imagined. I'm meeting that guy the rest of the way. There's this one time that Jesus is having a pretty bad day and he ends up on a cross. And... uh, The guy next to him is having an equally bad day. It's a horrible day. He can't breathe, you know. All he can do is get out three words. Please remember me. And what does Jesus say? Well, you better hurry up and say the sinner's prayer. They're not going to think you're saved in 2021. (laughs) No, (laughs) what? No. (laughs) Uh, What? No. No. What what was the only way for that man to be saved in the first century? Temple ritual. He would have had to get off the cross, run to the temple, find a priest to offer him a sacrifice, come back, get back up on the cross and die. Jesus is like, that sounds all entirely too hard, right? He's like, oh, please remember me. And thank God... Jesus was not as closed-minded as some of us. Imagine that conversation. You better hurry up and say the sinner's prayer. They're going to think you're saved. Sinner's prayer, what's that? It's a prayer they make up in 1830 to help people connect with me, and I dig it. What's it based on? It's based on Romans 10, 9, and 10. What's Romans? It's a book that hasn't been written yet, but you better hurry up. <laughs> what? No! No, this guy moves one millimeter towards Jesus, and Jesus meets him the rest of the way. Why? Because Jesus is the final full way to see God, and God has always been nicer than anybody ever thought, and he's meeting people the rest of the way. Which is why the writer of Romans, a guy named Paul, said, actually, the God revealed in Christ showed us that God always makes the first move, and then any mutual consent back, he meets us the rest of the way. See, in Jesus' day, how much did you have to sacrifice? none. How much you have to mutilate? None. God's getting nicer. Let's review with that same amount of shout gusto. Ready? Here we go. In Abraham's day, God lived up. How much you have to sacrifice? I don't know. Mutilate? I don't know. Moses' day, he lived in a tent. Sacrifice once. Mutilate once. David's day, he lived in a temple. Sacrifice once. Mutilate once. In In Jesus' day, he lives in flesh, sacrifice, none, mutilate, none, boy, God is getting nicer, but then it gets better than that, the the rest of the, if, if you want to understand the New Testament, right, they say great teachers can summarize big things in like one statement, here it is, ready, here's the whole New Testament in one statement, ready, here you go. God is like Jesus, exactly like Jesus. God had always been like Jesus. We did not know that, but now we do. (laughs) See, by Paul's day, God lives in us. Paul's day, God lives in Us. us. And then Paul, Peter, six different places by four different authors. It says that what happened on Calvary was not a new reality. It was a manifestation of what God was always like. That Jesus did not inaugurate a new reality. He simply manifested what God had been like from the beginning. If you need a scripture verse for everything... Here we go, ready? Ephesians 1, 4, he was crucified before the foundation of the world. First Peter 1, 20, he was crucified before the foundation of the world and in these last days was made manifest so we could see it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3, his sacrificial work was completed before the foundation of the world. The entire first chapter, 1 John, for we know that all these things have been true since before the foundation of the world, but now we have seen it with our own two eyes. Revelation thirteen eight. blessed are those whose names are found written in the book of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. First Timothy chapter 2, your salvation was given to you in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. And my personal favorite, Hebrews chapter 9. Didn't you know all along it was impossible for the blood of sacrifices to take away your sin? But God let you do that because you thought you needed to and your conscience needed to be appeased. In other words, God meets the broken story exactly where the broken story thinks God is and moves it to a better version of that story. Didn't you know all along it was impossible for the blood of sacrifices to take away your sin? But God let you do that because you thought you needed to. For don't you know that Jesus died before the foundation of the world at the culmination of the ages? I love that, the culmination of the ages. Does that sound like a Jewish theological principle? No, that sounds like a rock festival. Where'd you go last weekend? I went to the culmination of the ages. It was awesome. See, to the New Testament writers, this is not the gospel, okay? And please never present it this way. And if it's ever been presented to you this way, I ask for forgiveness. That God was grumpy, and then he got less grumpy because he hurt his own son. It's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus physically showed us what God was like all along that God was like Jesus exactly like Jesus God had always been like Jesus we did not know that but now we do and by the way that's the only thing that makes the Bible and the gospel make any sense if that's not true then this is the gospel right somebody says come on share the gospel in one sort of statement okay okay uh uh, God created the world, and even though he was God, he lacked the foresight to foresee human rebellion. So when humans rebelled, it sort of surprised him. So he had to rack his God brain as to what to do, and his best idea was to torture and kill his only son by sending to earth on a suicide mission. And even though the son obeyed the suicide mission, it was still pretty unaffected because billions of people are still gonna burn in hell forever with no hope of ever getting out, and God never gets what he wants anyway. Join us. no way no way the gospel's way better than that here it is that god created the world and because he was god he's able to foresee human rebellion and he loved his creation enough not to destroy it but to fix the whole broken thing before it started but his broken creation wouldn't believe it without seeing it so he loved us enough to enter into the broken story allow the broken story to kill him and then turn that murder around for the redemption of the broken story and the idea is is will our life ever show the world the beauty of that love story The whole Bible in 45 minutes. Why is Jesus important? The gospel presented. These are things that unify us. The scripture, the gospel, the risen Christ. One more review. Everybody ready with a whole lot of gusto, ready? In Abraham's day, God lived up. Oh, sacrifice, I don't know. Mutilate, I don't know. Moses day he lives in a tent. Sacrifice once, mutilate once. David's day he lived in a temple. Sacrifice once, mutilate once. Once in Jesus' day, God lives in flesh, sacrifice, none, mutilate, none. By Paul's day, God lives in us. And when was it all true? Before the foundation of the world that God was like Jesus, exactly like Jesus. God had always been like Jesus. We did not know that, but now we do. So, my brothers and sisters, yeah, if we can get the band back up. I want to pray a blessing over you. It's been such an honor to be a part of you and what we're doing today. And I hope everybody who listened to this understands the whole Bible in five words in 45 minutes and why Jesus matters so much. I bless you to know that you serve a God that believes in you more than you believe in him. I bless you know that you are the hope for this world, carrying that message to the world. May we carry the message of an awesome, inspired, beautiful story called the Bible, culminating in the risen Christ. And may our life show the world what it's like to come to a revelation that God is like Jesus, exactly like Jesus. God had always been like Jesus. We did not know that, but now we do. And may we embrace this beautiful, inspired narrative and may we journey maybe you're here tonight and you still see God is up far away in distance or a tent there but I can't get to him maybe you need to make a decision to acknowledge that God lives in Christ and maybe you've done that and maybe you need to come to this awareness where you own that this Holy Spirit is totally in you totally available and the question is is what are we going to do about it so my brothers and sisters may we carry this beautiful awesome revolutionary story to the world, and may our life show what it looks like to be profoundly connected to what's been true in Christ since before the foundation of the world, for Jesus did not inaugurate a new reality about God. He simply showed us what God was always like, and may our life show the world in unification what it's like to be connected to what's true before the foundation of the world at the culmination of the ages. I hope Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection is central, and scriptures got bigger, not smaller. Thanks for letting me be part of your night, guys. Grace and peace.